Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. <laughs> I'm your host, Ernie DeLosantos, founder and faculty chair at Appeal Academy and creator of Top Gun Audit School. And we are live on the February 3rd, 2017 edition of Finally Friday. And I do want to thank you for choosing to spend your precious time with us here on Finally Friday. Now, today's Finally Friday broadcast is sponsored by the Health Law Partners, providing solid advice and real solutions for healthcare business nationwide. And one of our partner firms is Recovery Analytics. That's Sharon Easterling's company. She does auditing and education and often authors articles for AHIMA as an AHIMA fellow. And she is also a co-host on the show. Finally, Friday is now also sponsored by Zermed. They are a leading provider of financial and clinical performance management solutions. They use breakthrough predictive analytics technology to help you get paid faster, more fully, and more cost-effectively by both payers and patients. You can visit Zermed.com to learn more. And we are proud to announce our latest sponsor, helping bring you all this free education, the American College of Physician Advisors. They are the premier organization for physician advisors nationwide. The ACPA is your unified resource for physician advisor education, idea sharing, and overall clinical and administrative support. Be sure to check out their website today at acpadvisors.org where you can get their free newsletter and also find out how to get a free copy of their Physician Advisor Handbook. And finally, we are also partnered with the Council for Certification of Medical Auditors. That's the CCMA. They are the creators of the widely used Certified Medical Audit Specialist or CMAS certification. And we're proud that we've been approved to offer CEUs for our shows by CM CCMA. You should check with your organization to see if they'll accept these CEUs. I've heard that most of the big ones do. Okay, this week we are diving into the very first executive order that President Donald Trump signed as soon as he took office, the executive order that's meant to begin to dismantle the Affordable Care Act. We'll take a look at the order itself and discuss what it does and does not do and discuss what that means for you as a provider. We're also going to talk about why we think you should be paying more attention, a lot more attention, to bundling and all the changes being implemented now to enable value-based payments and the continuing focus on outcomes, which, of course, let's be real, that's just code for how the government and payers intend to pay you, the providers, even less for more, more care that you provide. Anyway, as usual, we have our weekly panel with us, Dr. Maria Johar, who's a full-time physician advisor, coming to us from ProMedica Hospital System in Ohio. Actually, today she's traveling uh, on the way to a cruise, so, uh, but we're grateful that she's, uh, she's able to be with us. And then we have our revenue cycle expert, Sharon Easterling. She's an auditor and author with her own company, Recovery Analytics, creator of her newest product, called DocBytes. I suggest you go to her website for more information on that. It is free. And then, of course, we have Bill Malm, the Certified Medical Auditor and Physician Assistant, and he's the Managing Director of his own company, Health Revenue Integrity Services. Okay, before we get going, I do want to make clear, whoops, wasn't ready to go with that yet, uh, that the opinions shared on this show are those of the panelists and not necessarily representative of their employers. My opinions, of course, are my own and no one else's, and especially not those of our sponsors. Finally, these shows are offered for educational purposes only and are certainly not offered as legal advice. We do our best to provide great, accurate, and conservative education for free, or at least point you in the direction of solutions that you might be able to use. And now before we get started then, the last thing I want to do before that is change over to the website and show you if I can get there. There we go. Uh, especially for those of you who might be new to the show, you may want to go to the website and anywhere on appealacademy.com, if you scroll down a little bit, 
you will find a picture with the green buttons just like the ones on your screen. If you click on that, you will wind up at a page like this that gives you complete information on how to use those uh, buttons. In particular, you will want to open the chat room. That's the second button from the left. Because there, you will get um, a chance to talk with uh, not only uh, my panel and myself, but also everybody else who's on the line and open in the chat room. I do want to ask everybody to please be professional there and keep in mind that there are lots of different people with different jobs in there, so let's not be bashing anybody. Um, well, I, I bash CMS, but not personally. Okay, um, so anyway, there's also a way, if you notice that big green button in the middle, you can zoom in on the screen if you need to by yourself if I'm not zoomed in enough for you. Okay, last thing to tell you is that if you don't know about the handouts on the This Week on Finally Friday page, which is available from the main site, you can scroll down and find the handouts there. This week it's just the slides, as the other links are in the slides. And then there'll be a replay of the show here available probably a couple hours uh, after the show. And then also here is the CEU certificate that I told you about where you can download that. And there will be a podcast posted there, so you can actually get that from iTunes and even listen to this in your car or whatever. So, all right, let me now switch back to the uh, slideshow. Okay, and let's get uh, let's get cranking on the news. So, um, first thing I wanted to mention in the news this week was uh, Bill brought this to my attention this week. There's a lot of great information here on this page, there's the link on the slide, which is the MLN Connects uh, page, and there's a lot of upcoming events and webinars and publications, uh, a lot of great stuff posted there. don't know how many of you are aware of that. Uh, I don't think I've mentioned that, or I may not have ever shown it before. So anyway, there is that. We wanted to uh, recommend that you keep that one uh, bookmarked and go visit it Fairly often. Also, Go you ahead, can e-subscribe. You can actually e-subscribe on the network on that link, and uh, I recommend doing that because it does tell you what they're focusing on and it shows you what they're retraining on. So that's always interesting to see, like uh, their, their their signatures again, and we're talking uh, home health on what that certification looks. So they tend to come out with these educational components just a bit before they start their auditing. So it's always good to see what they're offering. Whoops. Sorry, didn't mean to go there. My mouse is playing uh, havoc here. Oh, here was somebody uh, asking about how our, how our bailiff is, uh, Lucky the Jack Russell Terrier. He's doing a little better. Um, I do know that uh, Bob Soltis has had him out to the vet and uh, he may have been having little mini strokes or something, but uh, so don't know, uh, don't know um, how much Lucky, uh, how long Lucky may still be with us. Although our, I've heard of, uh, I've heard of Jack Russell's uh, living as long as 20 years. I know Bob has had Lucky for 14 years. He's had Lucky, and he was a rescue dog, so Lucky was already a few years old by the time Bob got him. Anyway. Uh, oh, and people, yeah, recommending in the in the chat group. Yes, go check out uh, the ACPA website and, in particular, the newsletter uh, and the blog. And then, like I mentioned, you can get a free book. Anyway, uh, and thanks to them for um, you know thank them for being a sponsor. They they make this kind of stuff possible for free. So, okay. Um, one of the news articles that I saw this week, this was actually uh, from King & Spalding. Uh, they're a well-known legal firm. And um, they were talking about, they, they brought to light this, this OIG report about how the OIG is saying there were still uh, vulnerabilities uh, under the two midnight rule. Gee, what a surprise. Um, but, of course, their, their recommendations were that CMS review some things, analyze some things, and explore some things. And, of course, CMS agreed with all those things. Uh, but let's look at a little bit of what they were actually talking about. They were actually recommending that um, CMS continue to review or even review more 
um, the uh, short inpatient stays. Now, the weird thing to me is, of course, they just look at short stays or anything less than two days and consider anything less than two days a possible inappropriate uh, inpatient admission. Now, of course, it's possible, but, I mean, they talk about it like hospitals aren't supposed to be doing this. Um, as if, it, as if it's a bad idea or if it's not appropriate and you're not supposed to be paid that way. Uh, they did make this mention, though, in the footnote 34, and I was asking Bill about it. And Bill, maybe you can explain it because to me it seemed weird. There is, no, there is no list of outpatient procedure codes that's associated with the inpatient-only procedures. Um, and uh, not only do I wonder why there is no such list, but I also wonder why would that make a difference? And Bill was explaining to me some of the, uh, like some of the reasons, like why, you know, there was some discussion on rack relief this week. Like why, why was the, why was the inpatient only list since it's inpatient? Why is it in the outpatient rule? And Bill explained that to me. So I thought I'd let him explain that here. Bill, go so ahead. So it's, it's really quite historical. Um, as, they moved from DRGs, CFO started moving everything to the outpatient environment, and there was really no limit on what they were moving, trying to get things more, more things done in outpatients. Ambulatory surgery centers were getting more aggressive. Outpatient day surgeries were getting more aggressive. And CMS, it, it came about the time is what they called and referred by, and I don't mean to be crass about it, but this was kind of the language they used, the drive-by birthings in New Jersey where somebody would have a baby and they'd be gone four hours later out of hospital or eight hours later. This all came about the same time. And CMS said, look, we have an obligation to keep our beneficiaries safe, so there's some things that we just think should never be done as an outpatient. And they came up with this list, and it's always been promulgated through the negotiated rulemaking for outpatient prospective payment system. IPPS is a different matter. They're looking at medical necessity. They're looking at these, these matters. But OPPS basically put these in as a safety guideline uh, preventing uh, people from performing these procedures as an outpatient. Um, and if they did, they, you know, they may not get paid. So it was actually a negative on them. They didn't want to do it inappropriately. So it's been there. It's, it's another one of the piecemeal patches that CMS comes up with that they're quite fond of doing. Um, but unfortunately, there isn't a reverse scenario for this. So we find quite a bit of problems with inpatient-only orders where it clearly was an inpatient-only procedure, but then something changes during the procedure and they, it, doesn't, it doesn't meet that anymore. It's another procedure or vice versa where it was outpatient and it, then it becomes an inpatient procedure. You have a limited amount of time to get your coding done and your inpatient order. So it has been just fraught with issues and operational concerns, but that is why there is not a flip side. It really was just meant as a safety measure. Yeah, I think one of the biggest pieces um, for the outpatient procedure list was that, you know, as these new ambulatory surgical centers were uh, coming up across the nation, people were trying to, you know, uh, do these procedures either in their offices or in the ambulatory surgical centers. And what Medicare said was that there are certain procedures that need the full spectrum of services available because these are high risk. I mean, things could happen. So unless they could stop the payment. They believed that, you know, surgeons and folks might want to do them in their ambulatory surgical center. The payments were different. So now they're saying, or, you know, they have inpatient-only procedures that must have an inpatient site to get paid. They thought that was one way of organizing and ensuring that the right procedure was done at the right site. I think that was the yeah. big uh, place. Yeah, and the big problem that it makes, I, I think, is this idea that, well, you have a procedure that has both an inpatient code and an outpatient code. And it's basically like, you know, the way Bill explained it to me, it's like one stitch difference. There's just one little thing could be different that makes it go from inpatient to outpatient or from outpatient to inpatient. Uh, so sure. it's really sure. a, a difficult thing. And Right, and it's, uh, and it's how the surgeon writes his op notes. So if you were doing an outpatient procedure, 
And if you deem it incidental to the procedure, it stays outpatient. It's not coded as such. But if you deem it in your op note and you say it's a complication, now you have to code it. And that complication now may be an inpatient-only procedure. And now you require an inpatient-only order uh, in the required time frame to get paid. Otherwise, the entire thing gets denied. So it is a very complex piece for sure. Yeah, and, and and actually there was another complication that Bill was uh, talking about. Bill, you talked about how coding um, sometimes doesn't even realize uh, that there's a problem or that they don't they don't they don't catch the issue. Well, until co coding after coding likes time. to. Yeah, coding likes to code from final op note, and sometimes that final op note is not available in a time frame to write the inpatient order or to, to fix your orders. Uh, they wait until discharge or something. So there is a lot of concern on the timing of this operationally that really what's going to have to happen is you're going to have to do almost concurrent coding at the end of surgery, make sure that your inpatient stayed in inpatient or your outpatient stayed in outpatient, but as Dr. Johan just pointed out, a lot of times the complication isn't even uh, documented or in the initial op note, but would be in the final op note. So you, you just it's just operationally a nightmare. I mean, Dr. Fields has written things, you know, they were trying to get some of the, uh, the payments the same. This whole thing is another patchwork quilt by CMS. It seems quite simple to them you know we've got a list and that's that but it, it operationally it doesn't match operations it's going to involve coding involve the physician it involves the physician's offices you know a lot of times they're not the one providing that initial authorization code it may be somebody on staff um, so it's it just very complex those hospitals that that really have a lot of resources to throw at things like this. They have a coders uh, embedded in the mm. OR, so they take yeah. a quick look at what's going to be done. They have it in the uh, on their schedule for the day, and those that could come close to an inpatient or outpatient swap, and then they immediately look or talk to the first assistant right after the case or the, or the surgeon if they're available and say, did you do anything differently so that, that they can do it? But, I mean, that's a lot of resources. So, well, again, we, this is yeah. just another complication. So what we are trying to do, um, and to some uh, degree of success, is if the planned procedure um, is different from the final procedure in EPIC, we, uh, it's uh, an alert. So we know that we have to um, look at it one more time. Um, and then we are trying to do this more on the front end, like you said, concurrently, rather than wait for it to uh, you know, be done at the back end by the coders. Um, I know that last year we, at the RAC um, boot camp, we had a lot about discussion about the integrated coding of the CDI, yeah. and, and we are uh -huh. possibly going to have a similar situation this time around because it makes a big difference. A lot of the managed care companies are also trying to figure out which ones they are going to deem inpatient uh, procedures versus outpatient. You know, So the managed Medicare may decide that they don't want the hip to be an inpatient-only procedure. Because now we are mm. discharging them uh, within one day. Uh, so there's a lot of complications, and we have to clarify all of that. And actually, at the boot camp, we are going to have, you know, Humana, United, Aetna, um, and some of these other uh, insurance companies. And we are asking them to clarify what part of the Medicare rule or regulation they are going to abide by and be clear, because they can't pick and choose which procedures they want to make inpatient based on the inpatient guidelines that CMS has as compared to some of these other ones that they've yeah. decided, you know, based on the timeline that they don't want to do it. So it's not either this or that. I mean, you know, we want it to be in black and white and not all shades of gray. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, again, you know, as usual, I think this is going to be an ongoing issue for quite some time, but, uh, you know, the shame is that uh, it's the providers who have to figure out all the process to fix it because it's a, it's a mess. 
you know, once again, the solutions uh, that the government comes up with <clears throat> are a problem. There was another thing in that uh, in that that uh, I thought was a really kind of uh, encouraging. The OIG is saying, you know, uh, you need to take a look at how to uh, basically let people get more of uh, you account more time towards the three night rule uh, to qualify for SNF services. Yeah, but of course CMS says sure that'd be fine, but we don't have the statutory authority to make that change, um, which is very true. Possibly, you know, the thing we can look forward to is maybe if somebody puts a bug under uh, President Trump's uh, nose about this kind of thing, then maybe that'll get fixed, or maybe the new HHS secretary. Who knows? Uh, but anyway, that was the other thing that they were recommending in that. Uh, another thing Maybe there were... We're getting some um, go ahead. feedback go ahead. from somewhere. I said, I think oh. we're getting some feedback from somewhere. Oh, Maria, I think that's your car. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can, you, can you repeat that, Sharon, what you say? Oh, I think yeah. we're, we're hearing a bunch of talking behind you there. Oh, oh okay. I'm going to mute you. Okay. Um, so the... Um, uh, we didn't hear any news on JW Modifier this week, uh, but we have started to hear rumblings. Uh, Bill, I don't know if you want to talk about this, some rumblings about possibly... A yeah, I've had quite a, quite a number of clients today uh, informing me that certain Macs are either ill-prepared or not accepting JW. Uh, they're getting very conflicting information on JW status, G and K, and weight-based drugs. Uh, so I, I really have to stress at the moment there is nothing consistent out there other than that FAQ. It doesn't. It just seems to have gotten buried. Um, so you really need to, if you're having issues with JW, you need to go to your hospital association, make them aware this is a constant issue. You're going to need to go to the medical director of that MAC and or the medical director of the region. Um, when I've written in to OPPS um, and, and the Open Door Forum, they basically push it back on the ASP pricing group. Uh, the two listed in that ASP document um, they, they are no longer handling questions because it, they were only involved for pre-implementation. So I've been unable to find the person post-implementation that can answer questions. Um, but hmm. I have been sc screening all of the Macs every week for things that end up in their Ask the Contractor teleconferences or something like that. And there just is no new news. But uh, the frustration level in the, in the country is growing with this. Um, we needed an executive order to get rid of it, but um, I think at this mm. point we you should just ask your medical directors for your max, and you need to be persistent about it. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, okay, um, that's about that. So uh, a couple of other things that were in the news. Um, the GAO and a House committee found that uh, Medicaid improper payments had grown to seven grown by grown by seven billion dollars so i'm not going to spend any time on this but you can read you can read the slide there's some this is stuff from the article it's a good article that looks at it and uh the interesting thing to me was again it's saying that you know at least somebody's saying not all improper payments constitute fraud rather improper documentation experts say so um, and that's something that there was another uh, there's another slide coming up here in a minute that's about uh, that, those kind of numbers. Here's another one from Healthcare Finance uh, where you know CMS has got their strange calculators out again. I haven't done any analysis of it yet, but you know they are always able to use their calculators to tout how good they are, um, despite facts. Um, so now they're claiming that the two midnight rule has helped slash improper payments by 58% or from inpatient hospital claims by 58%. I don't know how much I believe that, uh, but there was this report that came out uh, earlier this week uh, that was posted, uh, the Medicare fee-for-service improper payments report. Here is the, there's a link again on the slide where you can go look at that yourself. There were two tables in it. 
that I wanted to bring up. One was this where they're adjusting for AB rebuild. Um, you know, of course, it doesn't adjust for, well, how many were, you know, I, I don't know whether this is talking about what about the payments that were not allowed to be rebuilt because they were from payments that were prior to the year you're talking about, but they probably count them as denials in this year. So there's no telling what CMS is, you know, what these numbers really mean. The thing that I thought that was kind of peculiar, or not peculiar, but was interesting to me, uh, was to look at uh, the DMOS numbers, uh, uh, the DME uh, POS numbers, because look at this improper payment rate. They're saying 46.3%. 46.3% of those claims are improperly paid. No wonder they've got a new rack. Uh, Bill, how do you pronounce their name? They used to be Connolly. Now they're called what? Cotaviti. 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 Oh, yeah. I am never going to be able to remember how to pronounce that. Cotaviti. That's what they say their name is. Not Cotaviti, which Ernie, is what I, I think. I think it's important to know that for years, DME has been an issue. Um, it yeah. was not one that was initially taken on by the RACs as it should have been. Um, that has been a big success of the HEAT teams around the nation uh, yes. for fraud and abuse. Uh, DME has been a longstanding issue. Um, I mean, you only need to look at your TV set, and it tells anybody in the room, if you've had some sort of back issue, just call this number, and we'll get you a brace. Um, I think that the, the issue here will be now dealt with, and if you look at this, if you look at what the Macs have been sending out, what's on that CMS Connects, there is a lot more stuff in education about how to appropriately uh, agree, uh, get an order for DME and what have you. So I think that's going to be really a big focus as we move forward. And this just only validates the findings. Yeah. Yeah. And this one, uh, this one again, you know, moves in the same direction. Although I do think it's interesting, like the experts are saying, it's about insufficient documentation. Uh, it's not even really about medical necessity. Which, if Tom Price gets, you know, gets approved, he is he wants to go after uh, real fraud and not this kind of stuff, which would be, you know, that that'd be a nice thing. But we'll have to see what happens. Okay, so and I want to uh, point out though the insufficient documentation. When you really read all this stuff, it's because there's so much documentation that may or not be relevant to the case that the, the hmm. real data, the real story gets buried in all this electronic health record. And uh, I think that the insufficient documentation really is also a story about unrelated documentation and things hmm. that are not relevant. I mean, the insufficient documentation rates have been increasing over time since we started with meaningful use and what have you. So I think this is, a, this is something to look at. You know, is yeah. this an issue for you? Because you, you may need to correct it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and of course, we've been talking about it for years here on our show. So last week, we talked about the changes in the Medicare appeals process, and uh, Bob Schultz was giving you advice on, on how you can use those uh, changes or what to do, and then he's got a webinar coming up about how to do exactly and this week we're talking about, well, what are the changes now under the executive order? So let's finally finally get into that. I think it just increases anxiety because, you know, once again, our wonderful government, if you think the problems they create are bad, just where you see their solutions. And, of course, one of their solutions is something like, um, you know, Homeland Security. And as you can see from this, you know, that despite all of this trouble and money and everything, they've not um, – covered any plot. So, you know, you wonder, do their solutions work at all? Anyway, so um, let's talk about the executive order. Uh, the basic, um, basically, we're, we're breaking it down into the five parts of the executive order, especially the, the five paragraphs or, or sections of it. So the first one in it, you know, we, we're going to talk about what, what really is changing. Well, Section 1 doesn't really change anything. It just says that, well, this is what the administration wants to do. It doesn't identify any specific provisions or regulations uh, that the Act brought about. It just says that it wants to, it basically wants to take it apart. 
Section two starts to get a little more dicey. Uh, and I'm going to let Bill talk about this in a minute because he had some interesting conversations with some lawyers earlier today. And basically, this re- the way this reads, you can at least consider it to be an order to slow down the ACA. Delay, waive, defer, no specifics given. And that's what, I, Bill, that's what you wanted to talk about because if you start thinking about this with the no specifics, you can get a lot. So... This is just a general delay. It's a slowdown till somebody can figure out what they want to do, not do with it, uh, repeal and replace. Um, I'm hearing now two, di- two different words for the word repeal. Repeal meaning take it all back, but replace it could mean that we're going to replace it with those parts of the ACA that work now. Uh, so there's a lot of just general confusion, concern, and angst out there. But when talking to a bunch of auditors this morning and, and people that are, that are kind of working through this, one of the things that was interesting was it imposes a physical, fiscal burden on states, a cost fee penalty or regulatory burden on families, providers, insurers, and patients. So now we're talking about, even though it's not in the ACA, would some of these providers who are being impacted by obtuse uh, audits uh, under section, Title VI of the enforcement portion of the ACA, uh, the extrapolations under that, is that something now where we're going to start to see providers and hospital associations, AMA, start to come back and say, you know what, Omaha and all these things that are going on, even though they're not directly related to the ACA, they do come under the enforcement portion of Title VI. And there was the question this morning, could it go there? Well, of course, we had 10 people on the line. 10 people came up with supposition. Nobody knows the answer. Um, But I do think that this whole matter is, is going to slow down, but I'm not convinced that all of the ACA is going to go away because a lot of it really seems to be working and to undo it would create a lot of harm. So the, the, it is concerning and, and encouraging at this point that the word fiscal burden, and they basically specify anybody who could possibly be harmed by this to slow it down. And so that, that just brings it back. What the other thing was with the Trump administration's uh, pharma focus, it was interesting that they, they said that, you know, if it causes an issue for medical devices, products, or medication. So it's, it looks like just they've named everything that they could to slow down. Anything that could be involved in healthcare, just slow it down. So, there no, again, there's no specifics. This is all just wait and see. Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, you know, we, do, we, don't, we don't really know, but this is a, this is a, troubling, a troubling thing. Um, although, you know, if they uh, decided to apply this to the racks, well, maybe that would be a good idea. But we'll see what happens. Uh, okay, so the next section uh, directs those to exercise all legal authority. It appears to direct agencies to grant states flexibility in implementing programs now. Now, maybe this is referring to uh, how the secretary can, under the Social Security Act, grant waivers. Uh, and that uh, seems to be a specific response to a couple of the states that have gotten waivers where they feel the Medicaid has been uh, more appropriately implemented for their particular region or state. So I think this is really speaking directly to the ability to give waivers. Um, That seems to be what we're going after here. Yeah, so, but it's, uh, you know, so that probably means that there, you know, there could be some more changes um, statewide you know, for the states, they may be getting some more, uh, some more flexibility, which I'm sure the states would enjoy. Um, section four, basically, this is basically telling um, the department heads to figure out a way to open up the exchanges. Uh, you know, and this is like uh, I know that uh, President Trump has talked about. He really wants to open it up to offer health insurance across state line, uh, which is going to be, if I understand it right, that could be a bit of a nightmare. Um, and the other thing about this is there may not be laws on the books that would support this. 
already. So there may have to be some new laws passed by Congress in order to really enable this. But of course, it's what uh, this is what Trump wants. So we'll see what happens. Um, but that you know that may support it, may not. But, and there but, are states that have already done this, that it just it didn't work well up in the Northeast. There are others that have had limited experience with it. But it was interesting this morning, as Cigna had pulled out of the marketplace, and they have announced that they are very much in if the ACA moves forward uh, with, the, with the possibility of interstate. So already we're starting to see payers who pulled out now considering, well, maybe, maybe there would be money, maybe we should do this. So that, that's a big unknown. This interstate has been discussed for years, and it, it's yeah. a big unknown. Ahead, They're also Maria. saying that for every, for every uh, new law that they pass, they have to get rid of two laws. So God knows what's going to be passed and which ones they're going to be deleting. Oh, well, I, yeah, that was about regulations, which will be easier to deal with than laws. But uh, but I do, yeah, I do think he, he wants to definitely cut down on, on legislation as well. Um yeah, Dr. Myerson saying in the in the chat room, crossing state lines means no consumer protection. Yeah, and like where would you file a complaint in Florida if your insurance company is licensed in Montana? Good point. Um, well, you wonder wouldn't they have wouldn't they have to file to be able to offer insurance in a different state? Don't they have to then go file? in that state to be able to offer? Yeah, they have to have representatives or agents within the state licensed by the state. So I don't know how that will look. Um, But what I got out of this was something very equivalent to the EU's healthcare and, and Canada crossing borders. I'm getting the flavor of a more national picture than a state picture. So Mm. I, I, I think this may be the beginning of them taking on pharma too. This may open up to that, you know, where you can only buy a limited amount of drugs in this state. Maybe that is going to be the first step to moving to uh, the ability to buy uh, interstate drugs. So its insurers would have to cover that. So this is a big unknown. This is a massive unknown. But there is. I don't is know if the insurers are going to be. I was going to say, I don't know if the insurers are going to be too keen on offering insurance nationwide. Uh, I don't know that they will. I think they'll be regionally adjusted. I think they'll stick to pockets. I think they'll go wherever they feel they're going to have the highest return on investment. I think we're going to see spotty. I think this may, a couple states may cross state lines, but I don't see this as a big, huge national thing. But I do think it opens the freedom to start controlling some of the other things. It, it will be interesting. I, I, uh, Dr. Meyerson again making a comment. I thought Republicans want states to control their laws and businesses. Yeah, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens with all this because yeah, you've got people who are very much for states' rights, uh, you know, and so it's going to be well, you know, it's going to be a hot mess as Sharon would say. So we'll see. Okay, section five. This is where. Uh, by they're basically saying, okay, to do all to do all this, go ahead and do it by law using the notice and comment procedures of the Administrative uh, Procedure Act, which was one of the things like they didn't do that with with the JW modifier, right, Bill? So maybe that's a reason. Well, they didn't go through the problem. full negotiated. They did put it in transmittal. They met all the minimum requirements, but it. It didn't. Okay. It didn't follow the path of, of like OPPS or IPPS or home health final rule or physician final rules. It, it just followed its own little path. Okay. So uh, yeah. All right. So this is just them him telling them, you know, look, go by, go play by the rules as much as you have to, basically. Um, so okay. So what? So what are these? What are these? Those are the changes. So what are the? How do they? possibly affect providers. Basically, you know, the the interesting thing to me is that the agencies, because the rule, the executive order is so nonspecific, the agencies are the ones who are basically going to get to decide, or at least so far, unless he comes out with some more orders, the agencies are going to, the ones who are going to get to decide 
well, what's a burden uh, and what's an added cost and, and for whom? Uh, so, I mean, it's very broad. The executive order is very broad. So uh, as I put here on the slide, if, the, if it's about the individual mandate, they're going to reduce the individual mandate uh, well, that's going to reduce the cost of some people for buying health insurance. But on the other hand, it's going to affect the pool that the exchange plans use. Uh, and so then that's going to, isn't that going to increase the cost and burden on the exchange's users and the people who want to buy the money through the exchanges. So, have, so you know, you reduce, the, reduce it for one set of people and you increase it for another. How are you then, how are you then going to get away with this? Or how are you going to do it in such a way that um, you're not, you know, upsetting an awful lot of people? So um, the other thing, of course, is if that happens, well, it might just reduce overall the number of people who are covered by the insurance or able to get it. Or even if they can get it, maybe they've got a less effective plan with much lower uh, coverage. So that means that the hospitals and other providers are going to wind up doing more uncompensated care. The problem with all of that, uh, as, as we see it, is that basically it's who knows what that is really going to be, and is it going to happen soon? I don't think so. So it's probably going to be a while. It is so interwoven and complicated uh, that you know these kinds of changes probably aren't going to happen anytime soon. So maybe it won't be for another year before we really see any of those kind of changes affecting providers. Although that gives you, you know, providers plenty of time then to go ahead and voice their concerns and, you know, launch campaigns to uh, kind of fight some of the, some of the suggestions that they may have. So, um, okay. So the other thing that I wanted to get to before, before we get too far along was this, why do you, why we think you should be paying more attention to bundling, and Bill, I'm going to let you. Uh, take I, I, the lead I don't on know. That. It's just yeah. I don't. I don't know. It's just bundling. Okay. I, I don't want to take that bundling as the focus because uh, okay. Senator Price, he, he he just hates bundling. He hates the orthopedic bundles with a passion. But I do think that the Center for Innovation and their multitude of new types of plans that are out there, their advanced payment models, macro MIPS. Uh, elements of the ACOs, the commercial risk-based uh, now insurance. I think all this fee for uh, volume and fee for service, I think that ship has sailed. I think what we now need to be looking at, which seems to be certainly generating a lot of talk in Washington, is the, the how fast we're moving towards p uh, fee for uh, value, fee for performance. Um, how many of the ACOs, while they didn't get initial uh, savings, how that could be recalculated. So there certainly is the pressure on looking for ways for managing the health care dollars. While Medicare is not arguably bankrupt, I mean, there's always been concerns about how to save the trust fund. Um, and I think what we're seeing now is that everybody's starting to say, okay, well, the fee for volume is something that was tried in other countries years ago. It's failed. And now, in some way, you're going to have to pay for the performance uh, of, a, uh, of a decent-based outcome. Now, whether we agree with the quality measures, don't agree with the quality measures, that's really not the point. The point is that America is investing quite a lot of money in looking at ways to do this through either advanced payment models or MACRA or MIPS. Um, physicians are now into some sort of uh, fee-for-value. So I think there has been a rapid, whether we wanted it or not, a rapid escalation uh, away for fee-for-volume. So I think that's going to be the continued focus. Yeah, and I, I think and, and, with whoever the go, leaders are, I think there will be a, possibly a matter of getting their opinion, but one huge thing we're seeing, and I don't think we can forget about, is the, the president really likes to look at what works well and what doesn't. So when you start talking mm. about some of these quality programs, comparing to, okay, we've been successful for this, and this is how much we've been successful. 
and we got to show him that. And I think if they're not showing him that something has been successful, is working, is bringing in a lot of dollars, then he might be willing to do away with it, you know, like the readmission reduction, the hospital-acquired condition program, um, some of the PSIs. Some of those programs have been very successful. So I Hmm. think that will be a huge piece of this, looking at our successes, keeping and managing some of those programs, and being kind of leery about stepping into some of those new directions. Um, So it'll be interesting to see. Okay. Yeah, and to me, I guess I, I, being a layman, I tend to bundle all of that together as uh, as bundling um, all of the all of those um, uh, payment reforms. To me, it seems like that's that's the general idea uh, because it's certainly moving away from the fee for service. And even I think if uh, if a value based program shown to not be very successful well maybe they'll get rid of it but i think they'll they'll just come up with something they'll try to come up with something that's that's better but will still be along those lines value-based absolutely and i do agree with bill about the burden um because i think there will be a lot of conversation about provider burden since there is a presence of that community within that group of people so I, i think burden probably will come into factor as well yeah. Um, oh, there were yeah, and there was uh, in the chat box there was a a link uh, that Dr. Hirsch put in that Ron Hirsch put in. Um, where in Minnesota they've passed a or they've they've got a proposed state law in the Minnesota legislature that that creates a list of conditions that can be denied coverage uh, if the ACA is finally revoked. I think those things are going to those are going to be real problems um, if it gets revoked. Yeah, I do the, think it's that's the biggest upon. seller. That's the biggest seller, and the good part the, there is kind of one good part, whether you're Republican or Democrat. The Republicans know that they're pretty well done in this country if they mess this up. Um, they <laughs> they're they're very afraid of it. I think they took it on. I think they boasted on it. I think they got what they asked for. And now I think overall, I think there's a sense of angst and tenacity about well, how do we fix this to not leave anyone behind? To do all those things that were promised because that that was good when we came out of the box, uh, blustering. But now we have to deal with things like CMS and. I mean, there are thousands of Americans that can't deal with CMS, so I, I, I hope that uh, the Republicans do a better job at it. Exactly. Yeah, Jay Paul's saying, if you break it, you own it. That is exactly right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, as speaking of that is, you know, we can talk about, well, what are, you know, these are basically some things out of news articles. You know, what is the status of a GOP replacement? Will they are having serious problems coming up with a consensus, even among themselves, much less uh, getting enough to uh, be able to break a, uh, you know, a Democratic filibuster. Uh, so it looks like they may, however, come up with the, uh, a way to do it is this budget reconciliation uh, that they can do that is not, it's not subject to a filibuster. So, but they are changing their tune, as Bill mentioned earlier. They're not talking about uh, wipe, wiping it out anymore. They're talking about repairing it. So, and there may be some other, are some other bills coming up that may be uh, approved in coming months. Uh, but again, they're going to have to get some support from the Democrats. They can't just, they can't just do whatever they want, uh, despite the Democrats really not having much power. Uh, we've mentioned Tom Price a few times, Representative Tom Price, Dr. Price, uh, who has been um, nominated for HHS secretary. Now, uh, prior to today, I was thinking that it, it still looks like he's going he's gonna to get past, uh, 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 past the committees uh, and we'll get to the full Senate. And all they need is... Uh, uh, the 52 votes to, to get him in, although a filibuster may may make that a problem. But um, 
there may be some news coming out later today. I don't know. Bill, you said you saw some news. There, there, yeah, there have been some, that... twi- some tweets and stuff about some uh, sale of a product and then purchase of stock uh, by price that needs further investigation. I don't know if that's a stall technique or or if that's a, a showstopper. I mean, I just can't get into Washington's head um, without losing mine, so I've just left that to yeah. whatever, whatever news company feels the need to share that. Um, but I do think it, it, there, there's still a lot of contention about the uh, his tentacles into the healthcare uh, uh, vendor market. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think there was a lot of question about that. I think the Democrats are very much against it. Um, I do think ultimately he may he may just skate in, uh, which may be a good thing for providers. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Um, what's going to happen in the insurance and markets, uh, insurance markets and exchanges? Uh, well, there are some very interesting bills uh, coming up that are being considered. Uh, and while um, you know it looks like, you know, again, it's it's anybody's guess as to how much the Democrats stand up and filibuster against things. They can't do that with everything. They, they can't spend their powder every day. Uh, so there's going to be some things that happen that may be good and some things that may get blocked. Um, and uh, who knows? Uh, of course, the Republicans are saying they've got it all, all handled. Democrats are saying it's going to cause uh, chaos and problems. Uh, so again, the problem is what will happen uh, in the end. And then there's the, the probably the biggest story about that is what's going to happen with uh, the FDA and Big Pharma. Uh, obvious, it's pretty obvious uh, President Trump has made uh, plenty of comments to say how much he, he does not like the pharmaceutical industry and wants to go after them. Um, but then there's the, uh, the hiring freeze, which has severely affected the FDA and other uh, agencies as well, but certainly the FDA, well, they can't review things if they don't have enough staff. Uh, so if they, so the question is, is President Trump going to give any more guidance to, to, uh, to ease things up? Well, they've done that uh, for what? They did it for the EPA, um, which basically they listed all these kind of jobs that were exempt from the freeze, which was basically every kind of job you could think of in the EPA. Um, but so we'll just have to just have to wait and see if he does that for the FDA to allow them, um, you know, to do something besides the uh, bioterrorism research. Uh, Bill, did you have something you wanted to comment on that? I know you were. No, you, I mean it just seems as fast as the government does something, the pharma does something else. So pharma's realized that naloxone or Narcan is a big, huge solution or at least a prevention against immediate death from heroin overdoses. So one of their wonderful manufacturers has decided the only thing to do is to take the generic naloxone and move it over to a talking self-administering pen for a huge thousands of dollars of increase that then put an extra burden on on our, our first responders, our schools, and heaven's knows what else. So, I mean, I, I think that uh, pharma is, is, on the, is on the agenda. It is on the agenda in the U.S. It is on the agenda uh, currently in South America as, it, as well as Australia and um, New Zealand pretty well solved it. They buy most of the drugs themselves. But I think all of the people are realizing that pharma is bankrupting or at least severely impacting their ability to provide reasonably cost care. And I, and I do think that these shenanigans with these changing uh, generic drugs and converting them somehow to an orphan drug or something like that will have to be addressed. I just think this is just getting too crazy. But they do tend to go after EpiPens and Narcans and those things that will uh, make a huge splash um, when yeah. when they get the money. So it it just seems like that one gentleman that with the HIV drugs has set off a new standard for America lowness. Well, there's, yeah, I just feel, it feels like there needs to be some kind of controls on these things in particular when they, when they have a monopoly on it. Uh, and that, you know, that, I mean, that's not allowed in industry. Um, not sure why it's allowed so much in pharma. Um, and 
you know, there's, there's, like you said, New Zealand, they buy all the drugs. So they buy their drugs directly and it, it goes into their, but they have a single payer for their system. for their national program, not for their yeah, for, the uh, for program. their independence. Their their secondary okay. insurers are private, um, but for the national program is very much like the VA and here's your formulary and that's that. And I, I think the U.S. government will have to go to something like that, or um, it, not even the states are are doing that. So I think we're going to have to see, you know, what's formulary because you no know, matter what's on the formulary, there will be somebody who doesn't get the drug they need because it's not in formulary. So that's always been the issue. You know, should we put this on formulary? You know, should we not put it on formulary? You know, is it approved? Um, so I think pharma is just just a mess. I like the comment by uh, <laughs> Juliet. It says, so it looks like we'll be able to prescribe horse tranquilizers soon. And John Paul's answer was, yeah, but you'll probably have to count the dosage by dragging your foot in the dirt. Uh, so, uh, anyway, it, it, it just is kind of, it's kind of strange to me that this stuff is allowed to go on, uh, with the pharma industry. They must have tremendous lobbyists, even better than, uh, the AMA. Um, so anyway, okay, well, that is, uh, that's pretty much our, you know, the, the, everything that we were going to talk about this week. And I think our conclusion is, look, it's, you know, it's Friday. It's time to relax. Uh, you know, are any of these changes really going to be that big and affect providers immediately? Probably not. Um, and if they do, it will be, uh, you know, let's, let's just, let's just hope, but we, we can't know what the government is going to do because, their programs are strange, and their solutions are not much better. Uh, so we're just going to have to, you know, see what happens uh, down the pike. But um, it does appear that things are happening. So whether you like them or not, and whether you're on on board with what President Trump is doing or not, uh, there are some things that are going to happen. So we'll just have to wait and see. Um, and, and Bernie, <laughs> before we close... I wanted yeah. to point out CMS just sent out an alert that they're going to extend PQRS uh, data submission from February the 28th to March the 17th or March the 13th uh, because people are having problems getting it in. There's a shock, um, but that has been. If you're in that bailiwick where you're trying to get it in, you get a bit of a breather from the 28th to the 13th of March. Okay, a little bit more time then. All right. Well, um, that's about all we've got. The one thing I want to remind you about before we sign off is just to sign up for, go sign up for uh, Bob Soltis' webinar coming up in, uh, in March uh, so you can find out what he's got to say about exactly how you do the things he was talking about uh, on last week's show. Uh, so they will do that and. Uh, no, I'm not giving out my visa number for buying drinks. No, as Dr. Hurst suggested, I'm buying. Uh, no, it's Friday, and I do think all of you should go have some wine or a drink or something. Uh, <laughs> so uh, anyway, that's, uh, that's what we've got for this week. Uh, I do want to thank uh, everybody for being with us. This, is, this, has been a, this has been a fun show, uh, and I do want to thank everybody for being on with us this week. Uh, we will be not back next week with I don't know what, so watch for my emails. Um, special thanks, of course, for contributions by Dr. Johar and Bill and Sharon. They're always here sharing their knowledge and experience with us. And, and everybody who's in the uh, chat box, uh, uh, we have some great conversations and comments there as well. And, of course, everybody owes thanks to our sponsors and partners the Health Law Partners, Zermed, Recovery Analytics, the CCMA, and now the American College of Physician Advisors. It is their contributions that make these broadcasts possible for free to all of you. So please thank them. Go visit their sites. Take a look at what they've got to offer. That's why they do this. So watch for my emails about next week's show. Uh, and please share the links to our show with your colleagues and friends. Get them all together and have lunch or whatever. Have a bag lunch. And the last thing I'm going to share with you is the last, the same thing I did last week because I think it's still a wonderful 
saying, all this endless thinking is very overrated. Uh, we just need to kind of relax and see what happens and do our jobs and things will work out. I am confident. And that's where the horse tranquilizer comes in that was speak we spoke of earlier. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you'll need to uh, just, uh, you know, drag your foot in the dirt and tell us how many you want. Okay. Well, thanks, everyone. Uh, we'll see you next week when it's finally Friday. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. Have a great weekend, Ernie. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.